in lieu of uh, what is going on this week, I want to depart again from uh, Hebrews and talk to you a little bit more about the great mission of the church of making disciples. I want to describe another facet of um, sharing the gospel God's way. We talked about that last week, didn't we? Sharing the gospel God's way. I suggested to you that there were six six stages in sharing the gospel. And there's an overlap between all these stages, obviously. But it's important, I think, for us to know, to understand, and to implement uh, those dynamics, implement those stages. And this morning, I want to focus in on one aspect of one of those stages. But if you remember with me, the six stages of sharing the good news, God's way. Anybody remember the first stage? Supplication. So it begins with, 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 with earnest prayer, doesn't it? We bring our supplications to God. We ask Him for success. What was the second stage? Confirmation. That's right. So we're supplication. We ask for confirmation. Third stage? Preparation. Preparation. We prepare uh, the person that we're going to talk to. Fourth stage? The presentation. So after there's preparation, then we make the presentation. What's the fifth stage? The invitation. Always give the invitation. Always give the person the opportunity to respond. And then the last stage is the incorporation. That's right. That's when we incorporate them into the larger context of the church. We incorporate them into the fellowship. They've come into relationship with God. Now they need to come into relationship with the body. So those six stages are critical if we are, in fact, to share the gospel God's way. We saw this reflected in that beautiful chapter, Genesis chapter 24, last week. Now, I want to talk to you this morning about what I I term the discovery. There is a discovery that people must make. And this is part of the presentation, if you will. Now, people can make this discovery any number of ways... But typically, and most commonly, the discovery is made when you and I, in our preparation, make a presentation to people. Are you with me? All right. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to think before you answer. What do you think, what do you think, is it that modern, secular people need to discover before they can effectively begin the Christian life, before they can effectively begin the Christian pilgrimage. What one thing must they discover? You fell into my trap. No, they don't need to discover that they're lost. They need to discover that they matter to God. They matter to God. Now, I'm going to explain to you why that is so critical. And you have to be able to understand and appreciate it in the context of our modern secular culture. The new life, the new possibilities that God offers in Jesus Christ begin with this discovery. Most people do not yet know that they matter to God. Now, you you, you sit here and think, 
Well, that's, that's pretty simple. It is simple, and yet it is so profound. When you talk to people today, when you understand the cultural milieu in which we are, we are brought up in our society, most people do not know that they matter to God. They may never have even guessed it. You say, but the majority of people in all the surveys say that they believe in God. Yes, they believe in God. But they believe in God as deists. Most modern secular people today are deists. What are we? We're theists. There's a difference between being a deist and a theist. A theist is one who believes in a personal God and has a personal relationship with that God. A deist believes in God, but does not believe that that God cares for them. Very simply. Now, the vast majority of people today are not atheists. And I've read enough studies, I've read enough surveys of of our, our society in America to know that the results of all these surveys, that fully 80 to 90% of the people in our country believe in God. You say, well, if they, if they all believe in God, then why is our country in such a mess? It's because they're deists. They're not theists. Huge difference. And we shall see that difference. Now, deists today come in two types. They come in two types. The first type is the lifetime deist. The lifetime deist, we find these in the majority of the secular people who throughout their lives, they have been taught, they have been trained, they have come to the conclusion that God is remote and removed from his creation. They envision God as being remote and removed from his creation. These are the lifetime deists. Now they may believe and they may assume that some great mind, some great transcendent mind created the universe and got everything started. But then he removed himself, is no longer involved, and quite frankly does not care. Now you say, how could people get this view of God? Well, if you, if you study history, there was a movement during the 18th century in Europe. Well, actually, there was a movement before that. You ever hear of the Renaissance? And out of the Renaissance grew a movement called the Enlightenment. Ever hear of the Enlightenment? The Enlightenment really became known as the Age of Reason. It's when reason became preeminent. Man's rational capacity. The view of deism largely grew out of the impact of that 18th century movement called the Enlightenment, or the Age of Reason. The whole emphasis was on human reason. Human reason. The Enlightenment, back there in the 18th century... It produced the intellectual foundations for Western society for the, for the 19th and the 20th centuries, for the next two centuries. The Enlightenment provided the foundation, provided the basis for, for all our, our intellectual life and pursuits. It is incredible when you study this and you see the impact of that movement and how it arose and then the effect that it's had. 
the Enlightenment's teachings are more widely believed by more Western people than are the teachings of Christianity. You would think that that Christianity for 2,000 years has had such a tremendous impact on the world, and it has. But just in the last two centuries, the impact of the Enlightenment has had a greater impact on what people believe than has Christianity. In this past century alone, just in the 20th century alone, the teachings of the Enlightenment have shaped most people's view of reality. In other words, the the Enlightenment has given people their worldview, how they view reality, more than has Christianity. And this has impacted the church. Many of you know my disfavorable feelings and thoughts about psychiatry and psychology. That whole system of thought arose out of enlightenment thinking. It's based on human reason. It holds no place in the church. Now people are going to make arguments for it, and I understand those arguments. But for centuries, this was sufficient. Now all of a sudden, in modern, secular culture, We have borrowed from that culture, and no longer is the word sufficient. And it goes on and on and on and on. All of education is permeated by this kind of thinking. Some of these teachings, very simply, I'm going to to boil it down to just a number of teachings uh, that, that, that Enlightenment has given to us. The first of these is that man is basically rational. Man is basically rational. Question. Is man a rational being? Yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. We can read, we can think, right? We have a rational capacity. Remember, God has made man in his image. Part of being in his image is that he has granted to us, he has, he has given us uh, certain abilities, certain qualities, if you will. We are personal beings. We are rational beings. We are choosing beings. We are emotional beings. We have these capacities, don't we? So we are rational beings, but we are not a basically rational being. We are basically spiritual beings who have a rational capacity. Now, the, the enlightened thinkers would tell us, no, you're basically rational. The second thing that the Enlightenment has left us with is that man is basically good. Man is basically, I'm a good person. I'm good at heart. I'm a nice guy. I do nice things. Have you ever heard that? And we've said it. And so all of society today is permeated. All of our social scientists, sociologists, psychologists, all these people are saying, but man is basically good. But if you turn to the Bible, what does the Bible say? He's rotten to the core. 
Now, we dare not say that for fear of insulting somebody. We won't be politically correct. (laughs) We dare not say, you're a sinner. Not that we don't say that in a pejorative manner, in a a pejorative attitude, but that's the truth. What does Jeremiah say? The heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Can you understand your heart? You know your motives? If you say yes, you've just, you've, you're the biggest fool going. So I think I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. No, you don't. You may have some idea. You may have some sense. But we all do things with mixed motives, and you can't sort those motives out. Only God can sort the motives out. Only God knows the human heart. We lie to ourselves, we lie to each other, we lie to God, we pretend, we play games, we do these dances, we wear these masks, we put up these barriers, we have our little ways of avoiding things. Am I right? See, man is not basically good. (laughs) He's a mess. If man was basically good, he wouldn't need a savior. He wouldn't need somebody to come from outside this system and save him. Because then he could save himself, couldn't he? There's a third thing that the Enlightenment left us with. Is that morality, morality could be based on reason alone. Question. Can morality be based on reason alone? Can you reason out a good moral order? No, you can't. Because why? Because you're fallible yourself. You're weak yourself. I don't care how intelligent, how bright you are, you're still a sinner. You're still imperfect. We need a standard Kind of like a ruler. Kind of like, you can't draw a straight line unless you've got a ruler to draw that straight line. I don't care how good an artist you are, freehand, I promise you, you draw the best straight line you can freehand. We'll put a ruler up there, and I'll bet you we find some deviation. Morality is not based on reason. Morality, beloved, is based on the very nature and character of God himself. That's what, that's what morality is based on. Why should we be holy? Because he is holy. That's what he says. If morality were based on reason, guess what? I'd reason out my morality, you'd reason out your morality. Isn't that what happens? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think this is moral, and well, that's immoral. No, no, that's, that's, that's not immoral. This is immoral. We have chaos, don't we? Everybody's deciding for themselves based on their own limited rational capacity what is moral. Everybody's choosing for themselves. Read the book of Judges. You see it reflected in the book of Judges. They departed from God's standard and each man did as he would. And their society and their culture uh, was degraded. The Enlightenment also told us that science and education could solve many of man's problems like poverty, crime, injustice, and war. 
Science alone, education alone can solve our problems. And we are pouring, as a, as a nation, we are pouring billions upon billions of tax dollars into scientific endeavors, into research projects, into education. And beloved, we are getting worse and worse and worse. Now, I'm not faulting teachers. There are wonderful, there's people in this room who are teachers and, and have given their life to teaching. Education is not a bad thing, it's a good thing, but it cannot solve our problems. Science is a wonderful gift from God that He's given to us, but it cannot solve our problems. These are only tools, but tools in the hands of Almighty God through faithful servants can bring solutions. Would you agree? The Enlightenment also taught that all religions are essentially the same. Have you ever heard that? It doesn't matter what you believe. I mean, they're all religions are essentially the same. And you know what? From a, a topical perspective, from a surface perspective, they all seem pretty much the same. I mean, they all talk about love. They all talk about goodness, being good people helping others, these kinds of of wonderful uh, motivations. But it's only when you begin to delve down beneath the surface and you begin to explore all these various religions, then you begin to see the tremendous difference. They're not the same, essentially. Apparently they look the same, but down deep, oh no, they're far, far different. My neighbor who received the Lord last night, is a Muslim from Iran. He stood there right last night. He stood up weeping, tears coming down his eyes. We've been praying for him for 10 years. He stood up with his two daughters, and he confessed to me after the service. I went and gave him a big hug, and he said, he said, the Holy Spirit is in me. He says, I'm different. His whole life, reading the Quran, his whole life following uh, Allah, his whole life is a Muslim from Iran, and he's received Jesus. And Jesus just isn't another prophet. Jesus is his Savior now, and Jesus is his God now. You see, not all religions are the same. But the Enlightenment has had a tremendous effect. God has made a wonderfully ordered and predictable universe, has He not? And science has discovered the order and the predictability of the universe and all of God's wonderful creation. But deism has left us, from a scientific perspective, with a sense, with a belief, that God just kind of made it all like a big machine... He set it in motion, and then he left. He left it all to function on its own. Quite frankly, he made it. He's done. He's on to other things. He doesn't care. This is deism. This is what deism is all about. This is what most people believe today, in one way or another. Many Western people today no longer expect Miracles. There are many people in the church who don't even expect miracles. 
That's how, that's how our lives, our Western lives, have been so impacted by this philosophy. We don't expect miracles. We get sick, first thing we do is go take an aspirin. First thing we don't do is pray. We don't wait on God. We take an aspirin. You say, well, wait a minute. But God made aspirin for us to take to help us. I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. But I'm suggesting that there's an underlying unbelief. How many times have, have, have any of us prayed and prayed and prayed and nothing has changed? Nothing has happened. And we are tempted to think, if not actually thinking, does God care? Where is God when I need him? He's abandoned me. Where is he? You know what I'm talking about? Strong temptation to think those things, huh? And when we're in the, we're in the midst of the fire and the, the heat of the circumstance and we cry out to God, there doesn't seem to be any help at all. And we wonder, is God even around? Does he even care? Beloved, the saints of the past, as we've been studying in Hebrews chapter 11, they knew their God was with them. They didn't think that he was gone off to the bathroom. They'd forgotten. He'd forgotten them. They knew he was with them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? He's able to deliver us, even if he doesn't. Am I making sense? You see, in fact, the supernatural becomes optional. When, in fact, the supernatural ought not to be optional. It ought to be our first call. We are supernatural people. Do you know that? We bear the seed of God. We are born again. We are huper nikomen. We are more than conquerors. And yet we are content with living such mundane, temporal, materialistic lives. God wants us to lift our sights. He wants us to believe him for awesome things. This whole presentation we're putting on this week, God's saying, church, church, if you believe me, watch what I can do. And most people are going, oh, I don't know. Most of our society is left with the reality of, from their perspective, that God is uninvolved. Very simply. That's deism. That's deism. Listen in to a conversation with two deists. This is a hypothetical conversation with two deists. The first one says this. If I saw a baseball, if I saw a baseball with the two equally shaped pieces of leather stitched so precisely, do you know what I'm talking about? Most guys have done this. I examined a baseball, and you just see those two pieces of leather, and they're, they're put like this, and they're stitched precisely, firmly, and uh, fascinating. So Adias looks at a baseball, and he sees that. He says, I, I, I have to conclude that that baseball and those two pieces of leather, leather didn't get stitched together by accident. They didn't come together by chance. 
That baseball had a designer and it had a maker. This is a deist. Now, the deist would go on to say, based on that logic, if I saw a baseball the size of a house, I would conclude the same thing. Doesn't matter the size of the baseball. I would conclude that it had a designer, it had a maker. It didn't come together by chance. He goes on and he stretches his analogy. He says, so when I see a ball the size of the world and infinitely more complex than a baseball, I reason that it too must have a designer and a maker. See, a deist believes in God. A deist believes in God. He's not agnostic and not atheist. A deist believes in God. He says, in effect, there has to be a big mind behind the Big Bang. Now, the second deist adds his part, and both parts make up deism. The second deist says this. Well, now, Bob and I, you have to understand, are only two of five billion people on this planet. And this world is only one of nine planets in our solar system. And our sun is one of a hundred million stars in our galaxy. And our galaxy is but one of a hundred million galaxies in the known universe. And granting what we know about the vastness of space, it is a stretch to believe that we matter to God. Here we are, little teensy-beensy, eeny-weeny, finite beings on a little speck of dust in an incredibly expansive universe. And we matter to God? That's a stretch. That's that's too big for human reason. That's too much to believe. Then in the context of the expanse of the universe, we matter. Now, we can relate to that because, quite frankly, just in the expanse of our own life, there are peripheral people, insignificant, if I can use that term, that don't matter. Isn't that true? If the truth be known. So it's not illogical for us to think, then, that God, because we project our motivations onto God all the time, it's not, in, it's not unreasonable for us to think, then, that God would consider us insignificant. This is deism. This is what deists believe. But they believe it because they're left with the effects of the Enlightenment. Their God, very simply, is the absentee landlord of the cosmos. Or to put it another way, he is the classic higher power. That's all they identify. He's a higher power in, 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 in the parlance that we understand today. Now, there's a second kind of deist. The second type of deist, this is a more tragic figure. We'll call this one the disillusioned deist. The disillusioned deist. And we find these people in the minority. They're not in the majority like the previous group. These are in the minority of secular people. These people, in fact, once believed They once believed in a personal God, at least a more personal God than deism knows. But these people have experienced or observed too much pain, too much suffering, too much tragedy, 
too much violence, too much injustice, and their earlier optimistic assumptions about God, that maybe he cared, maybe he was involved, maybe there was some hope. Those earlier optimistic assumptions about God were undermined by their life experiences. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Can't life experiences threaten to eat around the edges and and right into the heart of your faith and undermine your confidence in God that he does care, that he is close by? Yeah. So these people conclude that God either must not care or must not be involved after all. So they move logically into deism and some move into atheism. They give up altogether. There can't possibly be a God. I talk to people like this all the time. All the time. But they're trained and they're taught to reason it all out. Everything hangs on their reason. And human reason is limited, isn't it? It's finite. It can't comprehend the incomprehensible. Limited human reason cannot comprehend the infinite God in all of his wonder and glory and purpose and plans. Most of the time, we function with what I call keyhole theology. Keyhole theology is nothing more than looking into a room through a keyhole. How much of the room can you see? Very little. You can just see what the keyhole allows you, but there's lots more in the room that you never see. And just because you don't see it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. So this is, what, this, is, this is our dilemma. This is a problem that we face in our culture and our society. I want to suggest to you that, that the most, I think probably the most potent, the most effective way for helping that first group, those lifetime deists, the most effective way of helping those people is the actual message of Jesus found in Luke chapter 15. So I want you to turn to Luke 15. The message of Jesus found in Luke chapter 15. Now Luke chapter 15 tells three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. I want you to read that with me. We're just, just follow along as I read it out loud. And then we're going to discover five things, five ideas that are common to all three of those parables that have a bearing on what we're talking about this morning. Luke says in verse 1 of chapter 15, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering to hear him. Isn't that interesting? The tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering to hear him. Who were they gathering to hear? Jesus, that's right. He had things to say that, that that were speaking to their heart. Now, these people were the wretched, they were the outcast, they were culturally the insignificant of that society. But they're drawn to Jesus, they want to hear what he has to say. Now, there's a second group who's there. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes, what? Ooh, and he even eats with them. All right? So they're, they're now peripheral. They set aside and they're judging Jesus and they're judging those who are coming. Now, Jesus tells these three parables. He tells them so that the Pharisees would hear and so that the sinners would hear. Remember, he says, let he who has ears, let him hear. 
Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave this sheep and don't care about it and just takes care of the 99? Huh? No, what does he say? He leaves the 99 and he goes after the one that's been lost. And he goes after it until he finds it. Now remember those words. In fact, you might even want to underline them. Until he finds it. That, that's a significant thought. The shepherd goes after that one lost sheep until he finds it. And when, or, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Who would Jesus be referring to, the 99 persons who do not need to repent? The Pharisees, right? The teachers of the law. In their own mind, they're righteous, they don't need to repent. But in fact, they do need to repent. They're just as lost as that lost sheep. But they don't see it that way. Then he tells a second parable. He says, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she, what? Finds it. Does she give up? No, she persists until she finds the coin. Just like the shepherd, he persisted until he found that one lost sheep. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors, rejoice, and together it says, and it says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is what? Rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now this for a Jew is just forbidden. You have nothing to do with pigs. So this is the lowest of lowest humiliation for a Jew. After he squandered everything, now wouldn't you know it, there's a famine. No work. He's got to take whatever he can get. He's got to absolutely humiliate himself and feed pigs. So he's in a pretty, we, we'd say he's, would you say he's bottomed out? Yeah, I think he's bottomed out. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17. When he came to his senses. Isn't that a great phrase? When he came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way and was filled with anger, wasn't? What does it say? 
He was filled with compassion. And we see that he ran to his son, typically something that was absolutely out of order for a man to do. But he ran to his son, totally undignified. But he was so filled with compassion, so much love for his son, that he runs out to greet his son, can't wait for the boy to get to him. And he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father said, you're right. (laughs) No. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe. Father didn't even listen to him. Doesn't matter. Bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older brother was in the field. Who does the older brother, do you think, represent? That's right. Meanwhile, the older brother was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became thrilled and excited that his brother was home. (laughs) No. I keep misreading it. Sorry. (laughs) The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So notice this. The father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. (laughs) Slaving for me? But you're my son. That's how you have, that's how you viewed our relationship? You've been slaving for me? Religious work, huh? Slaving for God. (laughs) Suffering for Jesus. That's the mind of the legalist. There's no joy there. And sooner or later it comes out in resentment. This is all these years. I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this, now notice, it doesn't say my brother. When this son of yours, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes. Now how does he know that the kids squandered the money with prostitutes? Isn't it typical of us to project our own behavior and or motivations onto the people? We say, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> well, now, how could I possibly know what you're thinking if I haven't thought the first, that thing, same thing first? <laughs> True? So you've got to be real careful of judging people because you judge them on the basis of what you think. Isn't the Word of God wonderful? 
God, it just so unmasks us, doesn't it? He says, he squandered this, your property with prostitutes. He's come home. You kill the fattened calf for him. Good. <laughs> My son, the father, said, you are always with me. In other words, you've always been here, and everything I have is yours. I've never denied you anything. But we had to celebrate and be glad because now he corrects him. He says, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Aren't those three beautiful testimonies? Now, what do they tell us? They tell us five things. Five things that are pertinent to us in our discussion this morning. The first of the five things is this. Obvious, common to all three parables, something of great value is lost. Something of what? Great value is lost. Secondly, in response to this loss, there is an all-out search, or in the case of the lost son, an all-out anguished vigil. There's an all-out search for that which is lost. You see that? There's a third thing also that we see common to all three of the parables is that when that which is lost is found, there is a great celebration. How great a celebration. Whoo! Heaven is resounding. That's how great the celebration is. Fourth, God searches like the shepherd, like the woman, and like the Father. God searches like them. And fifth and last, we see this common to all three parables, that God does this. He searches like the shepherd and the woman and the Father because like the lost sheep, like the lost coin, like the lost son, beloved, we matter supremely to him we matter to god in the sermon on the mount matthew chapter 6 jesus in that passage on on anxiety and not being anxious for anything he says he says doesn't your heavenly father array the lilies of the field in greater splendor than all than all that solomon ever had and yet Aren't you more important than all of that? Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 10. And he tells his disciples, he teaches that a sparrow, a sparrow, the most common bird, does not fall to the ground without God's concern. And he says, are you not more valuable than a sparrow? He goes on in that passage in Matthew chapter 10 to teach that God knows us so well that even the hairs on our head are numbered. The God of the universe knows me that well that even the hairs on my head are numbered. Beloved, this is such a profound 
in yet simple truth, we matter to God. Most people don't have a clue that they matter to God. But when you open up the Scriptures and you show them, and it requires that the Holy Spirit enable them to see it, they'll see it and it will change them forever and ever and ever. They will see that they matter to God. That's the beginning of sharing the gospel. Now the second group, the disillusioned deists. The disillusioned deists, they too are often helped by this message from Jesus that we matter to God. But we want to take it a step, a step further with them. They are more profoundly and deeply reached, not by so much the message of Jesus, but the message about Jesus. The message about Jesus. And that message about Jesus is the message, the good news of the Incarnation. The good news of the Incarnation. Now remember, these are people who, who are just so tragically dispirited to hear this news can truly inspire them. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, that God made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In other words, God, the infinite, immortal, omnipotent God, set aside his robes of glory, clothed himself in human flesh, and dwelt amongst us, John says. Chapter 1 of his gospel, verse 14. The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us. God took on flesh and lived on this little speck of dust in this incredible universe that he created. Yes, he did. When you open the Gospels, and you read with, with them the Gospels, and you show them, this is God. Jesus' own words, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. God? God became a man? You take him over to the book of Hebrews, which you know, right? <laughs> you studied intimately? And you show them how we have a high priest who is acquainted with our weakness, who's been tempted at all points like we. This is the God that we're talking about. This is the God to whom they matter. They matter so much that He became like us. Beloved, the doctrine of the Incarnation. This is why doctrine is so important. It's not just schmoozy feelings. This is why doctrine is so important. The doctrine of the Incarnation, that God became a man. He was incarnate. He took on human flesh. This doctrine affirms that the God to whom we matter 
does not care from us, for us from a safe distance like some general hunkered down far away from his troops who are under siege. No, this God is Emmanuel. God with us. He is with us. He is with us. He is with us. Beloved, He is with us. He walks the floor with us. He cries with us. He anguishes with us. He suffers with us. He shares in the very struggles of our life. He is with us. You say, why doesn't He just deliver me? He will one day. But until He does, we live in the the in-between, if you will. The already and the not yet. Right in between. We're waiting for His coming. One day He will reveal Himself fully. One day we will see Him face to face. One day you and I will be whole. But until that day, the writer to the Hebrews tells us in chapter 11 of all of the Hall of Fame of saints who went through all the suffering, all the trials, all the victories, all the glory, they stayed with Him. They knew that He cared and that they mattered to Him. Beloved, He is with us. He's not just with us, He's in us. The Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that we have been sealed with His Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit as a down payment. And we're sealed for that day of redemption. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus says, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. No matter what you're going through, I am with you. How many know the formula? Fact, faith, feeling. The fact is, He's with us. It's only when you put your faith in that that you'll feel it. A lot of people say, well, I don't feel God. I don't feel Him in my life. Does He care? You'll never feel Him. You'll never have that peace. You'll never have that joy. You'll never know His comfort if you don't believe first in the fact that He says, I am with you. That's the truth, folks. That's the truth. James Russell Lowell wrote a poem called The Present Crisis. I want to quote part of it for you. He says, Careless seems the great avenger. Who's the great avenger, do you think? God. And for a lot of these people, he seems careless, forgetful even. Careless seems the great avenger. Today's or history's pages, but record one death grapple in the darkness. In other words, one story doesn't change, it's all of history. Sees this grappling between what? Between old systems and the word. He says, Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Does truth, ever, does truth ever win out? Does it ever conquer? Does it ever get the victory? It always seems like truth is, and, and goodness is hanging on the scaffold ready to be killed. And wrong always seems to be winning out. Isn't that true? Does it seem like it? 
He says, yeah, that scaffold sways the future. And behind the dim unknown standeth God within that shadow, keeping watch above his own. He's with us. He knows. We're told he'll not give us more than we can endure. He'll always give us a way of escape. He's always there to strengthen us. Beloved, the message that we matter this much to God is the leading edge. It's the leading edge of the Christian gospel today. We matter to God. People must know that. We must tell them you matter to God. They say, I do. Yes, let me show you. And then you open up the Bible and just read it to them. Now, this isn't the whole gospel, obviously, but it is the part that people typically need to discover first. They matter to God. Without this first discovery, they seldom ever discover the rest. We can pound them over the head, but until they come to that settled conviction that they matter to God, they'll never discover the rest of the gospel. Are we important to God's program? Are we important to his program of finding that which is lost? Absolutely. See, we get the great privilege of sharing good news with other people. We have good news for you. You matter to God. Is that great news? You matter to God. I have great news for you. You have an opportunity. God offers a wonderful opportunity for you to come into relationship with Him, to know Him personally, and to know His people. To have a relationship not only with Him, but also with His people. I have good news for you. God offers you a new life. He offers you forgiveness of your sins. He offers you a second chance, a clean slate. And He offers you, with that new life, a brand new lifestyle. That you can be free from the past. God says, old things pass away, new things come. I have good news for you. You matter to God. Beloved, we are about our great joy and privilege. The most important thing in life that we can do is to help other people know this truth, and become all that God meant them to be. That's discipleship. Helping each other become all that God meant for us to be. And the first step in that process is to help them to discover the great, wonderful truth that they matter to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for the confidence in the truth that we matter to you. We love you this morning. We pray your blessing on the church, O oh God, continuously. Fill us with your spirit. Cause us to be people, Lord, who are stimulated to love you and to be on fire for you. And Lord, just to respond to you and reach out to others. Lord, let us be like your disciples who at your word took the boats back out in the water and let those nets down. And they saw a catch so great that it almost sank their boats. Lord, we have this building. It almost looks like an ark. We ask you to fill it. Fill it, Lord. 
so that the very foundations tremble under the weight of people singing your praises. God, do a miracle. We love you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing his praises before we dismiss. Sing God with us again.